Koppel, host of the Time for Coffee podcast, where you get firsthand career advice into the jobs and industries that interest you the most. And before we start today's show, I have a quick favor to ask you. If you haven't already, I'd be incredibly grateful if you give us a rating and a review on iTunes. And if you're like me, you need to do it now because you'll forget later and because it's the best way to help others who may be in search of career advice to find this free resource. So press pause if you haven't done it and do it right now. I'll wait. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Java junkies, welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning more about strategic communications, explanatory storytelling, which I didn't even realize was a thing, or impact partnerships, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest checks all three boxes and is currently the head of strategic communications at LinkedIn. But before I introduce you to Anish Raman, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's newsletter that features career advice, insights, and inspiration from professionals like Anish who work in the industries that are most relevant to you. So head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign up box is right there. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Anish Raman, the head of strategic communications at LinkedIn, where he's worked since March 2021. Anish's personal and professional mission is to open as many doors to economic opportunity as possible for as many people as possible, especially those who face locked doors, often over generations, because of systemic injustice. Prior to joining LinkedIn, Anish worked for two years as Senior Advisor for Economic Strategy and Public Affairs for California Governor Gavin Newsom. And before that, he spent a couple of years at Facebook working as Head of Economic Impact. Anish has also worked in the early stage startup world, spending three years leading communications, marketing, and partnerships efforts at two different companies, one in the higher ed space, the other a digital news startup. From 2009 to 2014, Anish worked in the Obama administration, initially as a speechwriter to Treasury Secretary Tim Geithner during the fallout of the 2008 financial crisis, before moving to the White House as one of five domestic policy speechwriters for President Barack Obama. After a year spent in India on a Fulbright scholarship, Anish began his postgraduate career as a journalist at CNN, where he spent six years living and working all over the world as an on-air journalist, initially as a political reporter, later as a Southeast Asian correspondent and as a Baghdad correspondent, and as CNN's Middle East correspondent based in Cairo. Anish, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? Well, it, first, thank you for having me. It is so good to be here, and I will do you one better. I am over-caffeinated, which is usually my state until the afternoon, where I shift <laughs> from over to under. I have yet to figure out how to hit that just perfectly caffeinated level, <laughs> that balance. That sweet spot. So what's the deal? How many cups have you had? I, over time, have gotten better about when I stop having coffee because I am someone that if I have it too late in the day, it messes with my sleep. I've never been someone that could drink coffee and then go to bed like my parents, which I never understood. But I am probably, depending on the day and how tired I am and how early my girls woke my wife and I up, <laughs> verging on too much caffeine regularly. I don't even track cups anymore. I have a French press that I just fill up. And I, I, I am deliberately not measuring that out because I don't want to know actually how much I, I'm drinking every morning. I hear you. And 
I used to do French press. My issue is that it would get cold too quickly. So I just do pour over and I grind my beans and I totally appreciate that. And I think as both of us having been foreign correspondents working for CNN, (laughs) you get used to like having your body clock all screwed up and having to run on very little sleep. So I totally relate. Anish, well, I also feel it's a maturity because you will remember too, when you're overseas, sometimes you don't get a coffee, although maybe it's like the instant coffee. So you don't get the best coffee, but also you don't always get coffee. I remember certain times in Baghdad, Red Bull was the caffeinated drink of choice. And also to the chagrin of everyone I tell this story to, the hairstyling liquid of choice. I would just put some on my hand to like put my hair down in the sandstorms of Baghdad and it worked remarkably well. That is a first. I have never heard that before. In Asia. <laughs> I'm not sure that's going to like be something that Red Bull yeah. is going to want to have as part of their next marketing campaign. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. right. I agree. As I was preparing for our interview today and going through your really fascinating professional journey, I couldn't help but think all of the various roles that you've had, many of which I'd have to imagine you could have never guessed at back you were in school, not the least of which is your current job at LinkedIn, which was founded Two years after you graduated, you graduated in May 2001 and Reid Hoffman founded LinkedIn in May 2003. It's really like the quintessential example, Anish, as to why new grads should really only focus on what they want to do for the first year, maybe the first year or two after they graduate, because things are changing so quickly. So quickly. President Obama has a piece of advice he would often give to interns at the White House that I have really taken to heart. He said, worry less about what you want to be and think more about what you want to do. And for a long time, I worried more about what I wanted to be. A lot of my time after college was based on really deep conviction I had from earlier into middle school to be a TV reporter, a White House correspondent. I mapped everything to that until suddenly I knew that's not what I wanted to be. And my whole expectation for my career imploded around me. And it was really hard. This was the fall of 2007. It was really, really hard to sort of understand how to piece myself back together because I had been so focused on what I wanted to be. And suddenly realizing I no no longer wanted to be that was existential as an issue. But then I started transitioning into this other mindset of more about what I want to do. And that's where I started to unlock some of these pieces that now allow me to say I am in my dream job at LinkedIn. My every day is helping the world better define, measure, and expand economic opportunity. If you told me that's what I'd be doing in college, I wouldn't have really understood why that was a dream job. But now I do because I've always been someone interested in stories how we tell them, how they change others, how they change us. All of my jobs have had that skill. I've always been excited about systemic change, world-changing change. I'm one of those people that believes you have one life as this person in this place. Why not change the world with it? That's what drew me to journalism, to Obama, to tech, fueled in no small part by how Obama talked about tech and the, the sort of naivete, I think we could admit we had years ago about tech just being a force for good. I still think technology is a tool unlike any we've had as humans, that if we're deliberate about how we build it and use it, we can change the world for the better. So always about systemic change. And then third, and it took me a while to understand this, I am a big believer in economic opportunity as a prerequisite for human advancement. The reason it took a bit is because that idea is so baked into my life, it's ubiquitous as someone who is a child of immigrants who came to this country because they wanted for themselves and their kids more opportunity. And it's only over time I've understood that to be a driving impulse in the stories I told, the speeches I wrote, the companies I joined and now at LinkedIn, the way that we can uniquely, as you said at the beginning, unlock opportunity for more people in more places than ever before. And so now I can say confidently for the first time really ever that I am in my dream job 
And that is not the job I would have ever thought would have been the dream job for me when I graduated college. Sometimes things are so close to us, like the proverbial carton of milk or butter that you're looking for in the fridge that you miss it because it's right there in front of you. And it takes a number of years and perspective for you to step back and begin to see the picture. So let's talk about this dream job. Your title is Head of Strategic Communications. What does that mean at LinkedIn? And what do you do in this role, Anish? You go back to when Reed started LinkedIn. It was in his living room, really built around the idea that everyone should have more ability to build businesses, grow their careers. And one of the ways to do that without having to be entirely dependent on the place you work backing you was to activate your network, the people you knew who could get excited about what you're doing, support what you're doing. And so he starts LinkedIn as just a way for professionals to stay in touch with each other and to meet new professionals who are aligned with your interests. And then as LinkedIn grows over the years, eventually gets acquired by Microsoft, it becomes a bunch of different businesses within the broader LinkedIn platform. And over time, it it sort of is telling its story in this siloed way. Each of the businesses, whether it's about hiring or learning, they're all talking to different people in different ways. And so I became one of the first hires, if not the first hire, to really come in to help LinkedIn tell a single, simple story about who we are and how we're impacting the world. And the reason I was excited to do that is as someone who by that point had spent years in economic policy circles with Governor Newsom or Facebook or in the Obama administration, I was eager to hear from LinkedIn, but didn't see LinkedIn showing up. And so when I joined LinkedIn, it was more because I understood there to be a role for LinkedIn in our global conversation about economic opportunity that I could maybe help us achieve. And so when I joined, it was, I think it's fair to say, a calculated or concerted risk on both sides. I didn't know if LinkedIn really wanted to do a single simple story and in the ways that I would want to do it. And LinkedIn didn't know whether I was going to be able to make this work or whether this was going to prove to be something valuable for the company. And so at the beginning, it was really me taking time to understand the history of the company, getting to know the CEO and other executives. And then we started to test the idea of LinkedIn having a unique point of view and see if it would resonate. So a few months after I joined, which was um, about a year in, so this is last going into last summer, You might recall with the pandemic, everyone was talking about the great resignation, the big quit. And we were looking at our data, which is really unique. It's a real-time granular view of the labor market that has never existed before because of how many people we've got and the ways that people are publicly notifying when they change jobs or where they're at, even if they're not changing jobs, remote work taking hold. We were noticing people weren't just leaving jobs, they were moving into new jobs. And so we started to tell the story of what we call the great reshuffle. And we started with our CEO out there talking about it. We started to put our data behind it. We started to have other executives talk about it. We started to see other people outside of LinkedIn talking about it. We eventually got our chief economist on 60 Minutes as the lead story in January, explaining to the world what was happening in our labor market and in our economy. And even Paul Krugman, I think a few weeks ago, finally conceded in his column that we weren't seeing a great big quit. We were instead seeing a reshuffling of talent. And so that's an example of what now I spend my time every day thinking about how do we do that in a bigger, bolder way. And the real sort of North Star for me is our vision at LinkedIn, which is to create economic opportunity for every member of the global workforce. I think LinkedIn is uniquely positioned through explanatory storytelling and the unique view and data we have to help mobilize a world around economic opportunity, similar to how we've mobilized the world around climate change. If you think about climate change, we now, and and you think about it from Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth, which was just calling out an issue without an organized plan, to then BlackRock and others starting to invest in a real way around the idea of sustainability, to now when we have at an individual level, an understanding of what to do, recycle, compost, at an organizational level, what to do in terms of carbon footprint, and then at a global level, what to do in terms of the accords we're seeing. Now, you can call out the gaps that we should be doing more, but we're at least organized. I think we can help us get organized around economic opportunity and do so in ways that will unlock more opportunity for more people. And what's great about economic opportunity is that 
everyone who does well does good. Progress and prosperity go hand in hand. The more people whose talent is unleashed, who reach their potential, the more productive they are in the economy, the better off economies are, the better off societies are. So that's what drives me every day right now. So is strategic communications in your current role kind of a public affairs position? It's such a great question. I, I will preface by saying I've had a conflicted relationship with communications as a function across my career. Obviously, <laughs> you and I, as you start as a reporter, you are a communicator. You and I grew up in a world where to go into communications, whether it's PR or an agency, somehow felt like selling out. It also felt less core to organizational growth. And so after the White House, I was struggling with what to do. Do I go back to become a reporter? Do I go into tech? If so, do I do communications? And across those two companies, I really deliberately tried to not be about communications, but be about core growth and how you could use communications, but also marketing and partnerships to build growth for, for a startup. And then when I went to Facebook, I was on the policy team doing policy campaigns. And with Newsom, I was a public affairs campaign, managing that from an economic perspective. So I would say there are different, a bunch of different ways to define communications. And communications as a function is changing dramatically. The, the simple way to understand communications is there is owned content, earned content. Owned is blog posts you do, podcasts like this. Earned is media coverage you get, New York Times, 60 Minutes. And then there is some level of paid promotion that people do with their content. I think of what I do as more of a campaign approach. So how do you take all of that, but then really add in partnerships that you could launch, coalitions you could build, and really track it against things that are not just core to the business, but also core to the impact that you want to have. So at some level, it is an iteration of how communications has worked. I think it's also an iteration of corporate social responsibility. A lot of people who are going into the corporate world are looking for a sense of impact. And so CSR, as it's defined, used to be largely about donation. The last slide on the deck, the .org to the company, was where they just gave out money. And sometimes it was related to the core product. Often it wasn't. We're now seeing, I think, a real push among not just consumers, but employees to see impact as core business out, core product out. And that's the beginnings of a new era for CSR, where I think communications and marketing and partnerships will all play an integral role. But it's how do you show up every day as a company and as a brand in a way that is about core business impact on the world and ways that you are going a mile deep and an inch wide on that area of impact to better the world while growing the business. And so I, I think of where I live now is somewhere in between all of that. Mm. So take us into a typical day on the job for you, Anish. What are you working on these days? We're doing this interview in mid-April 2022. It's a great question because the timing is right for sort of a peek in. So I sort of walked through what we built with the Great Reshuffle as, as a campaign. I am now trying to figure out for LinkedIn where we go next. How do we do that in a more deliberate, strategic way with a multi-year view? And so a lot of my day right now is what I would call internal sales, internal influencing. I think one of the things I'm realizing is that a lot of the early days of a career are about the doing. And then at some point, you start to transition into the thinking. And another way that we like to break that out is strategy and execution. And often those are bifurcated. People just worry about execution. People just worry about strategy. And when you do that, execution doesn't feel like it's got any level of strategy around it. And strategy feels like it's kind of a waste of time because it's not tethered to the day-to-day. I think for your listeners, one of the most important skill sets they can develop now is the ability to do both, the ability to be both a thinker and a doer. And you'll be in different moments across your career where one of those will be the main driver. But across your career, you want to be able to always do both. And as you get more senior in your career, you want to really stand out with your thinking, with your ability to deliver new insights and strategies for your organization. As you get to that level, you end up doing a lot of what I'm doing now, which is building internal support for big ideas that you want the company or organization to do. And so right now, a lot of my time with our executives and other leaders at the company is sort of engaging them on where we could go next with this explanatory storytelling, building support for where we could go next, 
at a really strategic level, but then at an operational level, starting to think through, well, if we did that, what would that mean? What kind of resourcing would we need? What kind of metrics would we want to assign ourselves? How would we judge this work over the course of a year or three years? And so that's a lot of my everyday right now. It's like you're building a campaign inside LinkedIn before you execute one on the outside. Yeah, I, I often describe it as a startup within within rather than a startup on the outside. And so it's really exciting, but it's also one of those where I think you and I have forced ourselves into new environments where we've gotten used to the fact that hard things are hard and that life is messy and that's okay. And that's part of the the growth curve. That's part of learning as you do. And so now I'm much more accustomed to it and I actually embrace the messiness of trying to start something new because you learn as you go you iterate as you go. The way I'm describing this a year from now will be 10 times better than I'm describing it to you today because I'm going to get a better sense of it as I talk to everyone. But for folks early in their career, I think it can sometimes feel like you're, you're trying to make everything clean. You want a day-to-day that you know exactly what you're going to want to do. You do everything with perfection. Cleanliness is what you're trying to, to achieve. And actually, messiness is what you want to achieve because your ability to get good at messiness, to learn from messiness, to move messiness from one area to the next area as you sort of scale these ideas, that I think is becoming one of the more sought after skill sets and something that folks early in their career can think about and get accustomed to and then will really have as a competitive differentiator later on. Terrific. As I prepared for this interview, Anish, and was looking at your resume, it really paints the picture that Steve Jobs spoke about in his commencement address at Stanford University, in which he said, and I know this is something that you're very familiar with, that you can't connect dots in your career looking forward. It's only looking backwards. And now this is me talking. In other words, it's almost impossible to see how your professional journey will unfold. And it's especially challenging when you're at the beginning, right? When you graduate. And back in the day, when our parents finished school or started their professional career, it really was about just climbing the corporate ladder, usually at a single company. But in today's digital economy, things are changing so rapidly that it is next to impossible to connect those dots in that way. So let's flash back to when you were in college, Anish. You went to Harvard, where you majored in government. You have already somewhat foreshadowed the fact that from the time you were in middle school, you knew you wanted to be a journalist. But did you know exactly what you wanted to do when you graduated in 2001? Ever since I knew I wanted to be a journalist, I knew I wanted to be a White House reporter. Part of that I've come to understand in the racial awakening that we've experienced in my shift from white modeling to non-white. Part of that was I kind of wanted to be president, but I didn't think a non-white person could be. And so I thought, well, the next best thing would be to cover the president. Not that there were a lot of people of color as White House correspondents, but that somehow felt more attainable. And so from very early on, I wanted to be a White House correspondent. Growing up, Our dinner conversation was always immediately following the family, you know, watching the Peter Jennings and World News Tonight. And we always talked about what was reported on. And I had a very clear connection between what reporters reported on, what we were talking about, what the nation was talking about, and then impact in terms of policy and and cultural changes. So I really understood journalism to be about impact. And so White House correspondent was the North Star. Now, what was the way to do that? At the time, there were two paths. One was go to local news and rise up. And I had hosted a kid's sports show at a regional network called New England Cable News. But I knew that I didn't want to do the local news up because I knew that for a long time, I'd be covering news that I didn't necessarily feel like was that systemic societal impact level. And the other way was to go cover international news and work your way back. And so after college, I was really focused on the international path back to DC into the White House correspondent job. And so that's when, while I was doing the Fulbright in India, I started talking to the BBC, CNN, other bureaus there to see if I could start my career there. While I was doing the Fulbright, 9-11 happened. And so it became clear that news organizations were staffing up for a prolonged period of coverage out of the Middle East. And so that's when I ended up at CNN in Atlanta, 
worked overnight as a freelance assignment editor. It was just whatever job to get in over delivered on every task I was given to be able to stand out. And then after a bit, I think a year, year and a half, I recognized, okay, now I have to kind of pull the trigger on becoming an on-air reporter. Cause otherwise if you're not deliberate about that, it doesn't just happen. And so I went to my bosses and said, look, this is what I want to do and I'm ready to do it. And because of the credibility I had built, they said, okay, well, we've got this posting. You'll remember Tom Mintier was the Bangkok correspondent for CNN. She was retiring, job posting, opening. Do you want it? And I was like, yes. It's an international reporting job. It means I'll be covering like real issues across Southeast Asia. I might not be on TV all the time in the US because we only care about that region every so often, but I'll learn how to do this. I'll like earn some credibility and then come back as a White House correspondent when I'm ready. So I go to Bangkok and it was the best learning ground for a young reporter because we were still staffed there like journalism of old. I had a producer, Nurnot, who is an amazing teacher, a cameraman, Kit, who was amazing, a sound guy, an office manager. It was almost like this school built just for me was waiting in Bangkok. And so I went there and started covering the news out of Bangkok. And then 10 months in, this big tsunami happened. This is December 2004-ish, December 26th. And that becomes the first really big global story that I'm part of. And so I still vividly remember that day in Bangkok, feeling the hotel, or sorry, the apartment building I was in, swaying, not really realizing what it was, getting a call, two people are missing from a tidal wave in Bangkok, we think you need to go down there deciding we should go down there, realizing the airport's now closed, how are we going to get there, what's the first flight in, getting all our gear. And then that was the beginning of a whole new chapter in my career because then in the course of a month, I started appearing on every major CNN show. We, to our credit, or to CNN's credit, really focused on that story in the U.S. and were able to mobilize a lot of donations to a part of the world that otherwise is, is often looked over. And so then I had this big moment And then the question becomes, what do you do next as a reporter? Because if you don't capitalize on that sort of currency of having a big story, people forget pretty quickly. So I knew after after the tsunami, I needed to figure out a way to go somewhere else because Bangkok wasn't a top story in normal times. And at that point, the war in Iraq had started to get to a point where it was clear the war wasn't going to end soon. And it was also clear that the big name reporters felt less compulsion to keep going. Because the story just felt like it was perpetually about this like level of violence that didn't seem to abate. So that meant there was an opening for people who were young, who didn't have families, who were ready and willing to live in a war zone to go live in a war zone. And so I vividly remember having that conversation with my bosses and saying, I'm ready to go to Baghdad. I'd love to go with CNN, but I'm going anyway. And I'll find someone to work with when I get there. And so they said, yes, let's go. Go there. You become Baghdad correspondent. And so that was a whole nother chapter of my career now. I was in a war zone covering a story that on any given day was the most violent story in the world. It was this issue of how to then, given the, the sort of constancy of violence still break through to the public consciousness that something important was happening. It was also a struggle as a person because you're in a war zone. Journalists were getting kidnapped. So when you would travel, you were in armored vehicles. It was really isolated as an experience. and so. I did that. And after about a year and a half, I could tell that I was starting to go a little crazy, as one would expect when you live in a war zone and normalize to that. You get a huge amount of ADD. It took me, I think, a year or two years after Baghdad to actually sit through a movie for two hours because you're so used to constant activity and stimulus. You see the world in black and white because it really is an everyday story of life and death. And that means nothing matters. There are no rules to life. You just do what you're going to do. and I just understood that to be something that could have long-term implications on who I was as a person. And so then I remember calling my bosses and saying, I need out. And at that time, Iran was starting to become a big story. Ahmadinejad, who was president, was really becoming a space of nuclear defiance. And so he said, okay, you can have Iran as your beat, but we'll make you Middle East corresponding to living Cairo. You can cover the region. And so that I felt like was... The job before the job. I'm going to do this job. I'm going to do it as best as I can. And it is going to set me up as best as possible to become a White House correspondent. And then you know what? I go to Cairo. I'm doing the job. I'm going into Iran. And I look back at the coverage 
of the presidential primaries leading into them in 2008. And I can start to see things unraveling in terms of journalism that used to be about impact, but was becoming more about just punditry and voyeurism. First, I, I, I noticed it where I would go into places like Iran and want to do a story on dissident rappers in Iran, but was told, no, just talk to the camera about what it feels like to be in Iran. And so that was like the first signal. Okay, this isn't what I signed up for. This doesn't feel like it's worth me sacrificing at the level I'm sacrificing for. And then as I like looked on TV at White House correspondence, I'll never forget, I saw one White House correspondent doing a story about Barack Obama's workout routine at a gym, going through like the way he lifts weights. And that's not to say that there's not a story to be told on that, I guess, but that is not what I thought of as a White House correspondent's job. And so suddenly, reaching the point where I had the job before the job I've always wanted from when I was a kid, and realizing that that job is no longer one that I want, it was really, really hard. So the fall and winter of 2007, in a way that people used to be jealous of me in college because of the certitude I had, where other kids were trying to figure out what they wanted to be, I knew reflexively and deeply I wanted to be a White House correspondent. Suddenly that was gone. And I was lost. And I didn't know where to even begin to get back up. Do I go to grad school for the sake of it? If so, do I go to law school or do I go to business school? Do I go to PR? But that's not something I'd ever thought to do. But that's what journalists sometimes do when they leave journalism. Do I go home or do I stay abroad? It was really, really tough. And then to, to the Steve Jobs point, sometimes the dots just start emerging around you, even as you're struggling to find them within. Barack Obama wins Iowa. And suddenly this moment is unfolding back home that going to that original point of why I conceded I could never be president, that concession started to feel incomplete. Maybe America was a country that could elect a black man as president. And if that was going to happen, that's the thing I wanted to be part of. And I had a moment at some point around May where I recognized if I didn't go be part of that campaign, I would regret it for the rest of my life. And so I left a very established job with a very good income that was the job before the job I always wanted to have to become an unpaid intern at the Obama presidential campaign in Chicago, where no one knew what to do with me. No one was waiting with open arms and a job. I had to bring donuts on Saturdays to kind of barter with the security guard to let me in to the office because interns weren't supposed to come in on the weekend to be able to show up in front of folks on the campaign until I finally found a fit as a speechwriter for then Senator Biden. And that began then the next chapter of my career as a speechwriter. I love that story because you took a big risk stepping away from journalism, quitting what most people who were interested in journalism would have given their right arm for a job as Middle East correspondent. Did people try to talk you out of it? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, at every level, people within CNN said, this is a mistake. You'll never be able to come back. At the time, at least, there was this idea of a clear line between someone that goes into an administration and someone that can be on TV as a reporter. So it was everything you worked for, you're about to implode. There was also, how is a black man going to win in America? You're joining a campaign that's going to lose. And then what are you going to do? Having joined that campaign, you can't come back. There was just the instability in terms of my career. What is this going to mean? But I will say it was both the riskiest and easiest decision I made in my life. And that's for two reasons. One, my parents got it because they were drawn to the same thing I was drawn to in terms of what was emerging with the Obama campaign. And that meant a lot to me that they got it. And two, I had saved enough during my time at CNN. Now, I, w I only recently learned there's a thing called investment. I only understood as a kid of immigrants, you're supposed to earn and save. If I'd known about compounding interest, I would have probably invested more of what I had saved at the time I was at CNN. But what I had saved gave me agency. And that's what I think about when I talk about economic opportunities. In there is economic agency. It's freedom. It's the ability to define what is enough on your terms and to be able to then 
make decisions in your life on your terms. And, and I had savings from CNN that gave me a financial cushion to be able to go be an unpaid intern for a bit. But I, you know, I, I very much believe in, in regret mitigation. I, I live my life in order to try and not regret anything. And so that was really the anchor of that decision. I just knew if I was not showing up in Chicago at that campaign headquarters, which I thought was the most interesting place on earth to be, I was going to regret it. So that's what made it easy. But it was certainly risky. He could have lost. I could have not ended up with a clear path of speech writing. I could have not ended up at the White House, which I really was focused on to make it all make sense. And so there were a lot of things that were unknown that I had to still fight for and figure out along the way. But I knew that that was the path I wanted to go down and take the risk going down that path. So beyond the donuts that you bought to bribe your way into the campaign office on weekends, Anish, how did you get that first gig working for Senator Biden? And what advice do you have to offer our young listeners about how they can get their foot in the door of a new campaign? The things that, that I think about at LinkedIn all the time, networks and skills. So to answer your your second question first, how did I get that job? A person named Ricky Seidman. So Ricky had been a fellow at the Institute of Politics when I was an undergrad at Harvard. We had kind of bonded and she had become a mentor by that point and someone I was routinely going to for career advice. And then as luck would have it, um, paid intern on the Obama campaign, Ricky Seidman gets named the communications director for whoever was going to be the vice presidential nominee. And suddenly everything changed for me because now I had a personal advocate trying to help me land a job. So for the listeners, I would say networking is not just something that happens. It's something that you should be really deliberate about starting now. And I don't mean that in a stress-inducing way. I mean that in a a sort of agency-inducing way. Like, be deliberate. Track the people that you knew at college who were professors that you felt like really got you and got your skills. As you're going into new jobs, keep in touch with your peers. Know where they go develop mentors. And you're going to have mentors of two kinds. You're going to have mentors that you're going to go to just for advice. And they're going to be great at giving you advice, but they're not going to do anything other than give you advice. They're not going to call someone to get you a job. They're not going to create opportunities for you at the place they work. But that's okay. Those are folks you're going to for advice. But then you're also going to have what I would call advocates, people that are going to give you advice, but also are going to really go to bat for you. And, and so you want to track those folks. You want to track the peers and what are they doing and what's interesting and how do you compare notes with them? But across my career, my network has always served me well. And my network is not at all the same now as it was when I was coming out of college. And so that's the undercurrent of it all. And the change, the persistent change we're talking about, you've got to keep evolving your network as your career interests evolve and as the world around you evolves. So be really deliberate about building and, and nurturing your network. Because for me, that's what unlocked that. Now, the second part is skills. As you were saying at the beginning, explanatory storytelling. You didn't know that was a thing. I didn't know that was a thing until this job at LinkedIn where people started telling me that's what I did. And then I said, oh, actually, if I go back and look at everything, it was that. And transitioning to speech writing was the first time I was really forced to think about skill set. So until then, job, title, years in job and title. Bangkok correspondent to Middle East correspondent to White House correspondent. Now I can figure out what to do with what I did in this new world of politics in a campaign. Now, part of those jobs are communications jobs where you're dealing with the press. And I didn't want to deal with the press because like a tortured breakup, I had just left media, aggrieved about media. And so I didn't want to deal with journalists. Well, what does that leave you? Speech writing. Okay, what's speech writing? It's writing. That's not something I I had done naturally because I had been a talker. That's what you are when you're an on-air reporter. But it's still storytelling. It still has the beginning, middle, and end. It's still rallying people towards some awareness or action. And so I started doing it, and I started really liking it. And that then became who I was across the administration and how I got the White House job. I will also say that until the last day of that White House job, I found speech writing to be emotionally crippling. I am someone prone to thinking a lot about stuff, overthinking stuff, sitting in an office, staring at a blank screen, not knowing where to start with a voice that isn't even yours, it's the person you're writing for, that never got easy. But it did get more fun and it got more familial. And 
over time, I've come to identify myself as a writer in a way I never would have prior to speech writing. But to go back to your question in that moment, it was networks and it was looking at the world through a skills mindset, not a job title mindset. Could you unpack that just a little bit, Anish, and either tie it to, I guess, your second gig within the Obama administration working for Treasury Secretary Tim Geithner as his speechwriter? How you, as somebody who had never really been a speechwriter, managed to both adopt the voice of the person for whom you were writing, but also write about subjects. In the case of the 2009 Great Recession, presumably you knew something about the economy, but you were no expert. So how did you do that? How did you cut through all the jargon and the complexities of what you were writing about to do that job? Were you reading a lot of books? Were you reading speeches? Were you talking to other speechwriters? How did you do it? Yeah, bringing me back. The first thing I will say is it was really, really hard. And I call that out just because I've only been in really, really hard environments and I put myself deliberately in them that I've normalized myself to the fact that things are hard. But I want to call that out because I think that's important for folks to understand starting their career. David Axelrod, who's kind of the messaging guru of the Obama campaign, gave President Obama a plaque after healthcare passed, after Obamacare passed. And it was something he had said during one of these meetings where everyone was just complaining about how difficult it was to get Congress to support this, how difficult it was to land the messaging around why this mattered with the public. And it just says hard things are hard. And I think about that often. So this was hard. And I just concede that. But I will say the sort of superpower that has always come to the rescue for me is curiosity. I have always been incessantly curious. And so that means I am authentically interested in learning more always. So when I showed up at Treasury, I didn't know what a mortgage was. I had been a world reporter. We looked down on people that had to do the mundane things like have a mortgage and deal with the everyday things of life, like a bank account. We were off like living life at its most extreme. I had to learn what a mortgage was. I had to learn what a financial crisis routed in securities was, AIG. Lean in all of that. And at first, it was really me trying to learn quick, read everything Geithner said, read everything our policy team was doing. So that was part one. You have to really devote yourself to the study of new things. But the other part is you have to be really confident about what you bring to the table if you don't bring expertise on those things. And by that, I mean, even though I knew I didn't know a ton about the economy, I knew a ton about how to explain things. Because that's what I did in Baghdad, that's what I did in Bangkok, that's what I did in Tehran, that's what I was doing through speeches. And so I felt confident enough to always be the least informed person in the room, to raise my hand and say, hey, can you say that again and pretend I didn't understand what you just said? And that takes some confidence because often we're all in these environments where we don't want to let anyone know that we don't know what's being talked about. But one of the empowering things about being a speechwriter is, I can't do my job unless I understand it. And your job is to help me understand it. And that unlocks for me a way to take my curiosity, marry it with some confidence, and then be able to both learn new things, but contribute old insights. And, and I do think, and I'm really proud of some of the testimony that Geithner gave there. I'll give you one example. At the time, there was this big scandal about people at AIG getting bonuses, even though AIG is what really cascaded the risk to the global markets. And we were talking about how, what his testimony was going to look like as he was going to the Hill. And at first, people said, let's keep it short. It's really complicated and controversial. Less is more. And he, to his credit, really wanted to let people in. He wanted the world to understand what it was like in September, but when the financial, December 2008, when all of this was happening. And so for almost like three or four hours, me the chief economist for the Treasury Secretary and Treasury Secretary Greitner just sat in a room while he went methodically through what I called the testimony, three days in September. And it goes through all of the different things that policymakers and regulators were wrestling with. And I remember when we delivered that testimony, I forget who, it might have been Elijah Cummings, one of the members of Congress said, and they were all ready to come with their knives out. I mean, this was like a controversy. It was a great moment to lambast what had happened. And Elijah Cummings said, you know, I read your testimony and I don't know 
that anything could have been done differently because we just let folks in and we explained it in a way that was simple and human. That was a moment where I was like, oh, I do have something really meaningful to contribute. I might not have a PhD in economics, but I can help those who do explain what's happening in a way that can resonate with people. So it was curiosity, but also unlocking that confidence of what I had to contribute. A hundred percent. And also having the courage to admit that you didn't know something. That was something that took me years and years and years to reach that point. So you clearly did an amazing job because you made it to the White House and you were one of the five domestic speech writers. I want to just jump ahead now because I think, Anish, for our young listeners who may be thinking at this point, those who are graduating in May of 2022, I don't want to make a mistake. I need to pick the right first job in the right industry so that I can build my narrative and my professional brand. What would you want to tell them? Make a mistake. The best way to build your career is to embrace failure, to embrace messiness, to seek out mistakes. Because you're going to learn a lot more about what you want to do by learning what you don't want to do. And nothing but life will help unlock those answers. I think about, there's two quotes I think about. If Obama and the worry less about what you want to be and more about what you want to do is kind of a foundational piece, there's then the kind of like, what do you do with it? But even, even before that, as stressful as this is, and I know it is for kids who are coming into this really complex and evolving labor market, Bill Clinton has a quote where he's asked it at an event by a 20-year-old, what advice would you give to your 20-year-old self? And I'll never forget what he said. He said, it doesn't take long to live a life. And the fuller it is, the faster it goes. All of you are part of a relatively recent phenomenon in human history. You can choose what to do with your waking hours. Most of the people who have ever lived before, just a couple hundred years ago, never had that choice. So that's a quote. Now, there's something really powerful there. For most of human history, people were born into what they did. So that absolved them of the stress of having to figure out what they were meant to do and how to have the perfect career because it was figured out for them. Your parents were blacksmiths, you're going to be a blacksmith. Your parents were farmers, you're going to be a farmer. It's only recently that people have been able to start thinking about, well, what do I actually want to do? And even then, it's been isolated to kind of privileged communities. But we're so normalized to it that it just gets stressful. But we forget what a privilege it is. If you go across the span of human history and the history of work, what a privilege it is to be able to choose what to do with your waking hours. So treat it as a privilege. How do you operationalize that? Then I go to this quote from Atul Gawande, who was asked something similar as President Clinton at a Harvard event. What advice would you have for your younger self? And he says, before the age of 40, say yes to everything. After 40, say no to everything. <laughs> so that's kind of like a, a crash marker that you can use. And it worked for me. And so I've embraced it maybe with some bias because it timed out such that I was at LinkedIn right around 40. Take risks, make mistakes, fail to learn across your 20s. In your 30s, like you're starting to now with those mistakes, with those failures, have a really better educated view about the skill set you have, the type of places you want to be at, the type of issues you want to impact. And then by the time you're getting to 40, you're starting to get more deliberate so that you can be a senior leader if you want and that you are able to now start to build some consistency. And I will say, this has been literally true for me. A lot of what I did before 40 was say yes to stuff. Because I, I kind of understood to the Steve Jobs point in my gut that these were dots that were going to connect, even though I didn't see how necessarily at the moment. But I, And then after 40, like now I get incoming about job opportunities that I'm reflexively able to say no to. They don't make sense for what I'm trying to do because I know skill set is explanatory storytelling, building campaigns, issues, economic opportunity, type of organization is one with scale. There are very few places that can give me all three of those. So I say no now to the same amount of incoming that I used to say yes to because I was trying to figure out who I was and what I was trying to be. So it's stressful. I have total empathy for that and concede that. But never forget the privilege that you have as a person to consider what to do with your waking hours and practice self-grace and self-love. You don't, it is impossible to have it all figured out right now. So don't even pretend that that's what you're trying to do. 
give yourself a decade to better understand what you want to do by looking for mistakes, looking for failures. If those aren't happening in your 20s, you need to put yourself in new environments because that's the, the decade where you're most positioned to absorb risk. So optimize your risk. But you have till 40 and even probably later as we all live longer. Hey, um, to start Anish, to figure stuff out in terms of long-term path. Yep. I was fired twice in my 40s. So trust me, you can still, yeah, there you recover. <laughs> you can still recover from failures in your yeah. 40s. But yeah. I actually want to ask you about maybe it was when you were in your 20s to share a time in your professional life when you failed. This is a question I try to ask all oh, of us. And it is yeah. less important to get into necessarily the minutia of the failure or the face planting and more important, how you persevered and if there was a lesson that you may have learned in the process. Yeah. I mean, well, that last bit's the most important, right? Curiosity. I talked about that as, as a driving impulse for me. I love failure. I absolutely love failure. And the reason why is because I am always able to learn a lot more from failure than from success. When you have a failure, it's easier to deconstruct it and to learn from it than when you have a success. Because when you have a success, it's harder to reverse engineer what exactly happened and why did it work the way it worked. But a failure is easier to reverse engineer. So I love failures. I have had them across all of my jobs in ways that were really instrumental in me building my jobs. I mean, I'll give you one at Treasury. I talked about that AIG testimony as an example. Well, early on, New speechwriter, new person I'm working with, Secretary Geithner is about to speak before Obama at some event around rescuing the auto industry. And like, I didn't know exactly how he wanted stuff. I didn't know exactly what the auto package was and all that. And so I thought I did a really good job of putting together some talking points. And on Sunday morning, I get an email from his personal aide out to a whole group of people, not just me, but all my bosses saying, this is not anything close to what he wants. Like He wants to know who among you feels like this is something that is right for him to say. And I just remember, okay, I'm going back into work today. And so I still remember walking down, I lived at 7th and Penn, walking down Pennsylvania Avenue, knowing I just did something really messed, I, I messed up in a big way, but not knowing anything other than to go and fix it. And in fixing it, I uncovered all these good learnings about how to get stuff to him, how he wants to talk about stuff, how to make sure it matches with what others are going to talk about, what it means when he's speaking before the president and how that bar is different. So that's like one of my favorite failures because it was one of those where it was early in speech writing and, and it could have been one where I just decided, oh, I can't do this. But instead, I, I just said, okay, let me go back at this. But I will just say failures are everything. I mean, another failure, I, I went too far away from comp. In the startups, I was more and more focused on growth marketing and suddenly I was like becoming in charge of user growth that was going to be entirely dependent on growth marketing. That's a whole nother career and skill set than anything I had or wanted to be. And it was really tough conversations with the CEO of like, our growth numbers are not hitting there. Do you feel like you're equipped for it? And I didn't want to admit that I wasn't. But then at some point, I finally realized, no, I'm failing at this. And that's okay. I actually don't want to get better at this. This is a bridge too far from where I want my career to be. And so then I left and went to Facebook. And so failures are the best. Failures will teach you more about life, about yourself, and about your career growth than anything else. If you're not failing a lot, you're not learning enough. Uh, you know, one way I think about it is we often measure life linearly. It's about the scope of life from when we're a kid to when we're old and all the years in between. I think you should measure life as well by depth and by the ways you are better understanding yourself, better understanding the meaning of life for you. All of these things that aren't about the passage of time, but are about the depths of understanding. And if you think of it that way, there's no better way to go deep than failure. Been there, done that. <laughs> okay, so I have two final yeah. questions for you, Anish. What is the best career advice you've ever gotten? I would say today, more and more, it's the Obama line. Worry less about what you want to be and think more about what you want to do. There's a lot in there if you unpack it. We're living in this age of the creator economy and everyone's trying to be their own brand and everyone's trying to just be a big deal to be a big deal. And that is short-sighted and I think short-lived. 
But really where you become a big deal is when that's a byproduct of devoting yourself to what you want to do. And then everything else figures itself out. And, and so that's what I think is, I wish I had, I had heard it earlier and focused on it earlier, but the timing was right for me now. I mean, there's a, David Letterman too was once doing an interview and he talked about how when he was a kid, when he was in college, he never worried about how he was going to get a late night show. He only worried about what he was going to do once he got it. And I think there's also something similar there for folks starting their career. Don't worry about how you're going to get that job you think you want now. Worry about what are the things you would want to do when you have it. What are the skills you need to gain now to do that? What are the experiences you want to have when you do that? And focus on that. I think a lot of us went to schools and were in environments. I would say Harvard is probably one of these where you're sort of trained to focus on what you want to be, but reject that as much as you can and force yourself to focus more on what you want to do with this one life that you have. Love it. Final question. If you could go back to Harvard and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, Anish, what advice would you give yourself? Hmm, That is a great question. In ways that I didn't realize, I think I was bringing the right mindset. Even though I was at Harvard, I understood the power of vocational training, even though it's explicitly a liberal arts school that didn't have journalism as a field of study. And so I actually graduated in seven semesters so I could take the fall of my senior year off to intern at NBC through the 2000 election. And so I was, I always went to Harvard kind of knowing the limits of what Harvard was going to provide me in terms of actual teaching towards the job I wanted, but aware of the benefits that Harvard would provide me in terms of the network. So back in the days before email was regularly used, I was mailing every Harvard alum in the news industry, including Michelle McQueen at Nightline, a letter and a demo reel of my like high school and college on-air reporting because I knew that I could activate the alums to try and help me break in to journalism. So in ways I don't think I fully recognized at the time, I would say that I, I understood what I needed to do while at Harvard. I would say at the time, none of us understood the limits fully of a four-year higher education degree. It was, it was still a moment where everyone assumed you did that and then you were good for your career. It was starting to be, oh, that matters less than where you went to grad school. So as I look at my peers, I am among the minority of people who didn't go to grad school. And I think that's becoming more and more of a norm. But actually becoming more and more of a norm above all of that is what is all this education at all that cost worth, either for jobs of today or for where work is going to go in 20 years? And and so that, I think, is like an important insight for folks to have who are coming out of college now. Know, know what you can pull from and know what are the gaps of any institution you've gone to in terms of long-term relevance to work and find ways through your network and through your curiosity to keep learning. And you can use LinkedIn <laughs> to access yeah, there you your go. alumni <laughs> network and your new professional network, which can extend well beyond the school that you went to. You're going to want to definitely give Anish a follow on LinkedIn. Anish, I want to thank you so much for making time for coffee today with me and the T4C community. This was just wonderful. Well, thank you for having me. But more importantly, thank you for having these conversations. And I want to just end by saying to all your listeners, there's something really exciting unfolding in the world of work and your generation is driving that change. So in as much as you are coming to folks like me to hear insights and to have answers, you have them in you in ways that I'm really curious to hear. As you bring your expectations to work, as you bring your own sense of work-life balance, as you bring your own definition for enough um, into the workforce, it's going to change the workforce for us all. And so in as much as we are here to help you, you are going to help us. And so I'm just excited for all of you to come into the workforce and to see what you do, not just with the world of work, but to change the world. Thanks so much for listening to this latest episode of T4C. And if you're interested in learning more about my coaching services for confused college students and recent grads, feel free to check out the Time for Coffee website under the coaching tab at 
time, the number four, coffee.org, or text me at 202-236-5712. That's 202-236-5712.